Please be seated. Father, we thank you for these moments. We thank you that we can gather here, that we can worship. God, we thank you that, uh, that you are a God that we can trust in fully. You're a God that we can trust our parenting to. You're a God that we can trust our lives to. And so in these moments, would you be present in a new, maybe a special way? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm up here right now because today we are doing something special. Today, we're going to join as a church with Brooke Rutherford as she dedicates her son, Lucas, to the Lord. Before I invite Brooke and Lucas up to the front, let me share a little bit with you about dedication. Maybe this is the first time you've seen something like this happen. Dedication is rooted in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, where Moses actually gave some parenting advice, believe it or not. Here's what he said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Child dedication is about committing to this idea as a parent, to inviting God to bless my child to raising my child to follow Jesus. And it's about the church committing to being a part of this process as well. You know, there's a big difference between the idea of parenting and parenting, right? Am I right? All of you parents, I know you can raise your hands. There's a big difference between those two things. Parents realize very quickly that that not only is having a child this moment of great joy, but it's also the start of this perennial question, what have I gotten myself into? Right? Or as they get older, what is going on right now? I have no idea. I experience this frequently with my two little ones. The question we're always asking ourselves is, how can I control this chaos right now? Somehow, I just want to control what's going on. We sometimes fret about getting everything right. I know I do. But we hopefully realize at some point that our relationship with our children, it's more important than getting everything right. All the stuff that comes with parenting, all the schedules and the devices and the theories, they pale in comparison to the relationship that we build over time with that little human being. That's why parenting is such a gift. And of course, we often can't help but wonder, even if we're consistently present with our children, who will my kid become? Who will Lucas become? Is he going to get my laugh? Is he going to laugh a lot? I know he does, right? You're laughing right now, Lucas. It's so fun, right? Being your mom's little boy. Will they go to university or enter a trade? What will their friends be like? Will they like me when they're 18? Does any kid like their mom when they're 18? Well, the truth is, who a child will become is still somewhat of a mystery. It's still unfolding. And Brooke, even with all that mystery, the best person to influence Lucas's future is you. And as that influencer, it's important to stay focused on the things that really matter. The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. 
Moses once told this group of parents and aunts and uncles and singles and grandparents that the most important thing to pass on to every child is the relationship with God. He wanted them to show their children how to love God with all their hearts, and it's the same for us. We need to show our children how to love God with all their hearts, and that's what this moment is about. That's what dedication is all about. Brooke, we as a church, we're here to partner with you. Our goal is to create consistent and relevant environments so Lucas can grow in his relationship with God. Because we only have 936 weeks, believe it or not, from birth to age 18. Now, this is not 936 marbles. That's that's a lot of work. I'd get to like 175. I'd lose count. I'd have to start over. But there's a lot of marbles in here. And these represent each one of the days that you have, or weeks rather, that you have with Lucas. And uh, and we actually give you, we're going to give you kind of this little baggie of goodies. And in that baggie, we give you one of these. And this is kind of a a smaller version since I didn't want to count all that. So uh, this has a bunch of white marbles and each one represents a year of Lucas's life. And then the different colors represent something different. One represents love. One represents that moment when he's transitioned on from boyhood, when he maybe graduates from high school or turns 18. They're meant to be reminders. The time is fleeting. And so these moments are precious. These moments are important. And we as a church, we want to come alongside you in the same way that your parents and your family have wanted to come alongside you to help raise Lucas. We want to partner with you to help Lucas become someone who loves God and loves others. And so let me invite you up, Brooke and Lucas. You're going to come to the front. And uh, my wife and I, we had Brooke and we had Lucas over uh, on Tuesday night for dinner, and it was so much fun. Was it fun, Lucas? Did you have fun at our house? Yeah. Yeah. You had lots of fun at our house. You were running around like crazy. You met my daughter, Isabel, right? And did you have fun with Isabel? Yeah. Yeah, you had fun with Isabel. She was a little shy, but she warmed up to you, and you were kind of chasing her in the yard. It was lots of fun. Now, Lucas, I've learned that you like to do a few things. What are some of the things that you like to do? Um, I love to f- fish. And I love to play, and I love Jesus, and I just love my family. That's great, Luke. Do you want to say a little more? Yeah, okay, here you go. And and I love Grandma. That is so sweet, Lucas. Thanks for sharing all the things that you love. And, you know, this is a special moment. And your mom is up here because she wants to raise you to follow Jesus. And it sounds like you already love Jesus, right? She wants you to continue loving Jesus. And we as a church want you to continue loving Jesus. And that's what we're here for. We're here to help you in that. And so, uh, Brooke, I'm going to ask you just a few questions. And, uh, and this is what this moment of commitment and dedication is about. And then church, I'm going to ask you a few questions. Actually, I'm going to ask you one question. I'll make it easy for you. But one question that you as a church can commit to as we dedicate Lucas to the Lord. So, Brooke, do you today recognize Lucas as a gift of God and give heartfelt thanks for God's blessing? And do you pledge as a parent with God's fatherly help that you will bring Lucas up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, making every reasonable effort with patience and with love to build the word of God, the character of Christ, and the joy of the Lord into his life? And finally, do you promise, God helping you, 
to make it your regular prayer that by God's grace, he'll come to trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of his sins and for the fulfillment of all God's promises to him, even eternal life. And in this faith, follow Jesus as Lord and obey his teachings. Awesome. And for the church, here's my question for you, and your answer will be, we will. Will you, the church, be faithful to your calling as members of the body of Christ, pledging to pray for Lucas and to help Brooke live up to her promises? Yeah. Yes. Round of applause. Awesome. Well, Lucas, buddy, this is good news because God is behind you and the church is behind you and your mom and your family, they're behind you as you grow up in faith. And we're excited to see how your faith grows here at Coburg Alliance. So let me take a moment and I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to pray for your mom as we dedicate you to the Lord, okay? You're welcome. (laughs) God, thank you so much for these moments. Thanks that we can join with Brooke as she dedicates Lucas to you. God, these moments are special and they're so precious. And God, we want nothing more than to see Lucas grow up in the faith, to have a deep love for you, to be committed to you. And so in these moments, we ask and we invite you to bless him. Bless him abundantly. Help him to become strong and courageous. That is Brooke's prayer for him, that he would become strong and courageous in his faith. God, as a church, we, we ask that you would help us to see those moments we can, when we can help Lucas grow in his faith. And we can, when we can help come alongside Brooke as she raises Lucas to follow and love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everyone. How are you today? Um, Thank you so much for being with us today. It's great having you here at Coburg Alliance Church in person or online. For those of you who are catching this from our sister church, Sherbrooke Heights in Peterborough, we love that you're here. Huge shout out to you guys as well. This is our final week of a series we've been going through called A Generous Life. Um, Brooke and and, uh, this little dude, Lucas. So a young mom and her son went out for a meal, and uh, as the meal was set before them, this little guy wanted to say grace. So he bowed his head and he prayed so loud the entire restaurant could hear him. He said, God is loving, God is good, let us thank him for this food, and I will thank my mom even more when she buys me a giant ice cream sundae after dinner. Of course, most of the customers did what you did and laughed, but sure, wouldn't you know it. In the corner was, let's call her a little bit of a cranky woman. In the corner, and she said, kids these days asking God for ice cream. He should be ashamed 
course, the little guy heard this and burst into tears and cried and said, Mom, like, did I do something wrong? Is God mad at me? The mom tried to reassure him, and as she did, a gentleman approached the table and leaned in close to the kid and kind of gave him a little wink and said, young man, I happen to know God, and I think God thought that prayer was terrific. And through the tears, he said, really? And the man said, absolutely. And then the man kind of turned in the direction of the cranky lady and said, maybe she should ask God for some ice cream. You know, a little ice cream is good for your soul sometimes. So sure enough, at the end of the meal, that mom bought her son a gigantic, beautiful ice cream sundae, and little guy's eyes lit up, and the sundae was placed in front of him. Before mom knew what was happening, he picks up the sundae and carries it over to Cranky Lady, and he says, here, ma'am, this is for you. A little ice cream is good for the soul sometimes. Man, I love a good story on generosity. Um, listen, I don't know if ice cream is good for the soul, but I know that generosity is, especially with what we're giving away today. Um, today we're talking about God's greatest gift to us, something that is perhaps the most valuable currency that we have to spend and to share uh, generously. Philip Yancey said that the very reason religion, faith, excuse me, religious faith lives on is because we sense the numinous beauty of a gift undeserved that comes at unexpected moments from outside. That's cool, isn't it? Yeah, this morning we're going to talk about the gift undeserved. The gift undeserved. Um, if you guys ever heard of or met someone who you would require, excuse me, you would describe as requiring extra grace. Have you ever met someone who requires extra grace? Uh, it's like when you go to the movie theaters and they put on those little cartoons before the movie and they tell you about Kathy. Kathy likes to talk during the movie. Don't be a chatty Kathy, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, then they say, what about Susie Seat Kicker? Yeah, she's the worst. Some of you are Susie Seat Kickers. You know, the roads are a little closer today. People have been kind of giving you the look. That's you. It's not just at the movies that you meet extra grace required people. Have you ever bumped into a too close Chuck? Too close Chuck. What are you talking about? Somebody who has no sense of personal space right? They come to you at the office, and they're in your cubicle, and, and you can feel their breath on your face as they ask you to borrow the stapler, and you're like, what don't you just keep it? You know, you try and get some distance back. Too close, Chuck. Sorry, Chuck. That's not about you, honestly. Um, okay, what about this one? Okay, I hesitate to bring this one up, but okay, does anyone here go to the gym? Does anybody have a gym membership? I need you here. If I'm the only one, you guys won't understand this story. I need to know I'm not alone in this. Okay. Those three, you guys should really start going to the gym. <laughs> you may or may not want to after I tell this story. Okay, so I, I had a gym membership up in Thunder Bay. And uh, gym, gyms in Thunder Bay are like gyms everywhere, except... That I don't know if you know this, Thunder Bay has the largest Finnish population outside of Finland anywhere in the world. Did you know that? Massive Finn population. Something you may or may not, not know if you don't have any friends who are Finns. Uh, Finns are known for their love of saunas, right? 
that's Finns. Uh, other thing Finns are known for is how they like to sauna. Um, their saunaing state, if you will. I only mention that because, listen, Finns are a serious and very respectful people. They're great. I, I, they are. They're wonderful, wonderful people. And if you happen to stumble on a Finn in the sauna, they know the rules, okay? You don't make eye contact. For the love of humanity, you don't start a conversation with someone who's not a Finn. They know the rules. They are very respectful. But listen, every once in a while when you go to the gym, you run into a character. You're in the change room. You open the door to the sauna, and they look up at you wearing nothing but a smile, and they want to tell you their whole life story. I'm just not comfortable with that. There are towels at the counter. Extra grace required. That's what we call them. We just, they're extra grace required type of people. Okay, folks, here's the startlingly naked truth about all of this. You might not sauna like the Finns, but there are still parts of your life that you can't cover with a towel. And for those parts, you need grace, don't you? You need grace. Absolutely. Listen, every one of us is an extra grace required person. We all are. Does that surprise you? Yeah, you're like, Daryl, clearly you are an extra grace required person. Yes. Listen, every single day you experience blessing and benefit, whether or not you have earned it or entitled to it in some way. You think you deserve it. Every day you awake to new mercies from the God who sees you as you are, knows exactly what you've done, and he loves you anyways. That's grace. That's grace, and there's nothing you can do to earn it. It's absolutely free. It's a gift. And once we get over ourselves, this is exactly what's so much fun about grace. Like, folks, if you can't expect it because you don't deserve it, it means it's always a surprise when God pours out his goodness and his favor and his blessing into your life. You just sit back and, and when, with wonder you say, man, that's just grace. Folks, I think grace is the cornerstone of a generous life. Yeah, grace is the cornerstone of a generous life. I never get tired of this. Of all of my years telling inappropriate stories at church and, and enjoying the grace of God, I have also learned that there is nothing on this earth more fun to give away than grace, than grace. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. If you think my opening story made you feel uncomfortable, this next one might also. John chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 2. John 8 verse 2 says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, talking about Jesus, where all of the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. It says, But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground, with his finger. 
when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, stoop down to write on the ground. Of course, at this, those who uh, heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Uh, of course, as with any story, uh, there is some background context or some subtext that you might have noticed. First, this is what I noticed. Um, interestingly, this story of grace unfolds on church property, as it were, uh, the temple grounds, but maybe not in the way you'd hope. Um, maybe you'd hope that the church would be the place where it'd be most easy to find acceptance and understanding and forgiveness, the place where people can be most honest and transparent and not place uh, known for eating their wounded. But verse 2 says, At dawn Jesus went again to the temple courts where all the people gathered around them and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees actually brought into the temple grounds a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group. It's kind of cruel, isn't it? That's my, that's my first impulse. Man, that's harsh, especially because I'm not sure I've ever met someone that didn't have a secret of some sort, something that you're not proud of, uh, something in your life that maybe demands of you modesty um, or asks to be uh, sheltered, protected. Um, actually, you know what? Let's go ahead. Look at the person next to you. No, no, don't imagine theirs. <laughs> Yeah, don't imagine theirs. I know, I know, that guy secretly listens to country music. <laughs> or worse, he doesn't even hide it. <laughs> okay, I'm kidding, guys, over here, I know. I know. My, my kids will tell you, I know. My kids will tell you, my road trip sounds like yours. Um, I say I like both kinds of music, country and western. Okay, S look at the person next to you. What is that thing in your life that you don't want them knowing? That thing that you don't want exposed? Because we all have something, um, right? All right, look up at me. Stop looking at that person. They're getting uncomfortable. There's an old song uh, that I always liked because it says, if the truth was known and the light was shone on every hidden part of my soul, most would turn away and shake their heads and say, he still has such a long way to go. If the truth was known, you'd see that the only good in me is Jesus. If the walls could speak of the times I've been weak when everybody thought I was strong, could I show my face if it weren't for the grace of the one who's known the truth all along, if the walls could speak, they'd say that my only hope is the grace of Jesus. So just imagine how it would have felt to be caught doing that one thing that you wish nobody knew that you did. Now imagine getting caught doing that thing and then dragged to the place where you think that nobody can relate to what you're going through. 
right? Right or wrong, that's what some people think about the church, right? This is the only, the only picture of the church that a lot of people have is this place where everybody seems to be spotless, right? Living Ken and Barbie kind of lives, and, and, and anybody who strays from the way gets shunned or worse, crucified. Listen, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that that's how a lot of people feel about the church these days, And back then it was worse because it wasn't Christianity, it was Judaism, it wasn't the church, it was the temple. And right or wrong, the perspective of some at that time would be that the Jewish faith was built around this idea that you maintain your relationship with God by strictly obeying the law that God had given. True or not, that's how some on the outside would have perceived Uh, the Jewish faith, as if God had said, I'll be your God if you'll be my people. If you want to be my people, then you have to obey the law. But it always was and still is impossible to fully and completely obey the law. And so the temple for those people who have that idea in their minds is the place where you go to be reminded of just how far you fall short right? Or, or it's the place where you go to offer sacrifice in an attempt to pay for your enormous, overwhelming spiritual debt or shortcomings. Um, at least that's what you think. That's what some think. So every time you went to the temple, how would you feel? You'd feel a little bit exposed, right? I think that's how some people feel when they come to church. They feel a little bit exposed, and, and in this story, when the self-righteous people drag this poor woman in front of Jesus, not just Jesus, they drag her in front of her neighbors, probably her neighbors. There were probably people she knew in the temple courts that morning. She probably would have felt more than a little bit of shame. And the worst part is that it wasn't even about her. Did you catch that in the story? It's not even about her. They didn't drag her to the temple to somehow discipline her. They didn't, they didn't drag her to the temple to make her feel bad. They didn't even have her best interests in mind. They didn't have her worst interests in mind either. We're told that they simply saw the whole situation as something they could use to trap Jesus. Another opportunity to display their moral superiority. A great opportunity to trap a man they saw as not playing by the rules. And so just imagine the leader of the pack, no doubt giving the speech that he had been preparing all morning. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What say you? And that's, of course, when Jesus does something unpredictable. He's kind of known for behaving unpredictably. Uh, already by this point it says he bends down and he starts to write in the ground with his finger like some mysterious kung fu master (laughs) you ask him a question and he starts writing on the ground what does that even mean i have no idea people love to guess incidentally you know what do you think he was writing i have no idea nobody has any idea people love to guess if i had to guess i'm guessing jesus was writing a story 
Um, but these Pharisees and the teachers of the law seem unaffected by what he's writing. Do you see that? He had been writing for a while. They don't, they don't seem to care. They're unaffected by what Jesus was doing with what Jesus was writing. They are undeterred by whatever it is. They actually seem determined to interrupt Jesus. They're still peppering him with questions, questions of the law, questions about offense, questions about sin, questions about guilt, and it's not until they get to the demands of justice that Jesus allows himself to be interrupted, and he stands up, and he speaks. Let he who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. And then he bows down again, and he starts uh, writing the story he had been writing before. Have you ever been in a situation like this? I know not exactly. But where in some way you find yourself exposed and facing the consequences of the truth. You ever been in a situation like that? This is the truth. The truth is the woman had broken the law. It's not a small thing. Um, in that day, in that culture, the punishment for such a crime was actually severe. Um, there are surprisingly still some cultures today you know, where this precise scenario could happen. Can you even imagine that? The thought of having to live in a culture with such a severe understanding of righteousness and justice where offense is punished so strictly. Okay, I'm just wondering if there's anyone out there who's ever confronted God about someone who has offended your sense of righteousness. Have you, ever, have you ever prayed that justice would be administered swiftly and strictly on someone who crossed you? Like the guy who snuck into your parking spot in the, you clearly were signaling, and he just went ahead and stole your spot. A wise man once said, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword, and folks, a justice characterized by swords or even scales. The kind of uh, upbringing that many of you perhaps here were steeped in as part of your religious upbringing. It actually challenges us because that's not the story that Jesus was writing, is it? Um, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Um, awesome story, right? Profound. Verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she finally speaks, no one, sir, she said. And then Jesus, in a startling act of generosity, a flagrant grace, says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Have to confess, man, I love this about Jesus. Like, I love that he can draw a crowd, but I love that he knows how to clear room too. 
right? The next time you walk into a gripe fest at work, see how fast you can clear the room by offering grace to the absent person, (laughs) right? Who's getting uh, publicly tried and quartered or drawn and quartered and crucified. See how fast you can clear the room by offering grace to that person. Folks, this is an incredible story of grace. Um, But that doesn't mean that we're all going to come out uh, of the story on the same side. Really, it's, this is a complicated story. Some of you relate really well to the woman, right? You do. You relate to the woman. When this story's told, you might even well up a bit because you relate so much to this woman. You know what it feels like to constantly be carrying around the weight of your failure, your need for forgiveness. If that's you, you just wish that somebody would show some generosity to you, that somebody would stoop to lift the weight of your debt, that you could experience grace. Uh, for others of you, this story stings because it's not just a story for you. Um, some of you have been hurt in this way. You relate to the husband. Some of you have been betrayed or cheated on or lied to. You felt the sting of a broken promise. We're not even told where the husband is in this story. But we do know that in this culture, adultery was a sin punishable by death. It's not mine. Do you know what? There's a rule at church. I don't know if you know this. If your phone goes off during church, you have to buy the pastor a pizza. That's, that's true, right? Is that the same here as it was in the... Re- Is that the same here? That's what this was in the culture, folks. Um, adultery was a sin punishable by death in the strict reading of the law. Death by stoning. But listen, in many cases, the husband had to choose how the debt would be paid. It wasn't a given that everyone who committed adultery would get stoned to death. The husband had to choose. Joseph knew this from his own story. Do you remember this? Joseph had chosen, excuse me, Jesus knew this from his story. Joseph's uh, father, who raised him at least for a time, had chosen to divorce Jesus' mother, Mary, quietly when it appeared as though she had broken their engagement. Jesus grew up, at least for a time, with a man of generous grace. Yeah, Jesus' own dad was a man of generous grace. So you can't forget when we read this story, and even though we celebrate the grace in the story, you can't forget that there was a victim in the story. Just like there is in every story. I don't want to, and we can't, trivialize grace. Grace always comes at a cost, and sometimes it is expensive. And it's not just the woman whose future was transformed by the experience of generous grace. The victim's life, the husband's life could be too. And I say could be because it depends. It depends on how he will respond to what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Do you guys need me to say that again? How you respond to what Jesus says and did in this story has the power to transform your story of hurt like it did this family's story in John chapter 8. And we never get to hear an impact victim statement. I'm sure there was one. Grace doesn't mean that the victim 
hasn't been profoundly and deeply hurt and wounded by what happened. But folks, grace just, just makes a way for both the victim and the offender to somehow, over time, get up from under the debt and the debris of the offense. Does that make sense? Grace might take time, but grace can dig you out. It can. And so this right here is the question that all of us should ask ourselves when we find ourselves having been hurt for small stuff, but also for the big stuff. How is, how is Jesus asking me to respond, or how is it possible to respond to what God chooses to do with your stories of injustice and betrayal and hurt? Am I willing to trust God with the outcome? Listen, that's a tough question. I'm not trivializing, you know, maybe some of your experience of hurt or wounded. I'm, I cannot. That's a tough question. Trusting God isn't all sunshine and fairy tales. It's hard. It's hard. But it's healing. So the way we all relate to the story, most of us, I hope, here in this room, is as onlookers, right? The onlookers who found themselves witnessing this story unfolding on that day in the temple grounds. They are the audience, all of us uh, there listening, watching, seeing, not really connected, but, but there somehow. And we're weighing what we've seen and deciding how we feel about this story of grace. Those of us who can relate to the accused and the exposed will love this story of grace and of generosity will say, there's hope for me. There's hope for me. Those of us who can relate to the victim struggle more with this story. They do. Some of us who feel less affected personally try to distance ourselves from the emotion, and we attempt to weigh the impact of justice versus grace on the participants, don't we? We do. Yeah, you'll no doubt comment, you know, there are, Daryl, some dangerous precedents being set here by Jesus. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe soon everybody will think it's okay to cheat or lie or betray, right? Or, or you don't want people to presume on your generosity here, Jesus. Careful, Jesus. And some of you will reserve your opinion until you see whether this woman ever admits, right, that what she did was wrong and follow Jesus' advice. You're just going to reserve your judgment until you see whether she goes now and sins no more, right? That was what Jesus said. So you're like, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. You question whether guilty people deserve generosity or forgiveness. Whether grace has the power to transform human behavior as well as something more proportional. Eye for an eye or good swift kick in the something you think maybe something more proportional might do a better job at transforming their lives. There's even a chance that some of you think that adultery should be punishable in the strictest of terms. That Jesus maybe was soft on sin in the story, and maybe to you this story is tragic. But for those of you who have experienced the generosity of undeserved forgiveness and the favor of God in your own complicated and sometimes far too exposed life, man, you understand this story. Maybe more than just understand, maybe when I read it, you actually recognize the grace 
that Jesus showed because you're like, I've been there. This is my story. Yeah, some things do have to be experienced to be understood, and I wish that for all of you. Brendan Manning is the author of the Ragamuffin Gospel and more recently, All is Grace, a Ragamuffin Memoir. Uh, Brendan Manning was uh, born and raised in Depression-era New York City, finished high school, enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps. He fought in... Excuse me. I thought someone was saying, Hoorah! Um, I thought that's what... Right on cue. I thought maybe we have a Marine here. Um, he fought in the Marine... Excuse me, in the Korean War. And, and when he returned, he was actually ordained to the Franciscan pre- priesthood, okay? Sounds like this is a great dude. What a great path. Depression-era New Yorker, U.S. Marine, hoorah, war vet, commits to a life of faith and service. Now transport yourself to 2000 when Manning is an ex-priest, ex-husband, but still a fumbling along lover of God. Listen to what Manning writes. When I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I'm a rational animal and I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. But my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. He says, my message unchanged for more than 50 years is this. God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be because nobody is as they should be. Listen, folks, whether you're a guest with us here today and you would describe yourself as totally new to the whole faith thing or maybe you've been a fumbling along lover of God for years, I hope you know that because of the astounding generosity of God, grace is available for you. It is absolutely available for you. If you need it, it is possible to experience the surprising, even gratuitous forgiveness and favor of blessing and benefit of God in your life. Even you, listen, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're hiding when you look at the person sitting next to you, It is my prayer that you will experience that here. Yeah, among the people of Coburg Alliance Church. Listen, my greatest hope for Coburg Alliance Church is that we would be a community rich and generous in the currency of grace. That's it. That's it. That we would never forget the joy and the surprise that we felt when we experienced grace Uh, for ourselves, and that we would always be ready to offer it unexpectedly, generously to the people around us. Are you with me? Worship team, come on back up. Let Let me leave you with this from Phil Anderson's book, Breaking the Rules. He says, my highest hope for all of us is to stop trying to fool others by appearing to have our act together. We need to become better known for what and who we actually are. Perhaps a good place to begin would be 
telling the world before the world does its own investigation that we're not as bad as we think. (laughs) We're worse. At least most of us are. But before us all is a story of grace that amazes as much as it does offends. It pardons the guilty with indiscriminate compassion, grace that is sufficient to cover absolutely anything that is exposed to. And so what have you got? What's going on inside there? His grace is enough. Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Jesus, would you give us the courage to come to you this morning to receive from you the grace man, that we need and that you are so ready to give. God, give us the freedom to enjoy it without ever thinking that we can live up to it or that that we should try somehow to live up to it. God, we confess to you that at times we have been unwilling to extend grace, feeling like our offenders have already taken so much. But then we remember what you gave for us. So God, we confess that. We are sorry. God, would you forgive us? And God, would you give us somehow by your Holy Spirit in us the grace to admit that we need you, to embrace the brokenness that we know is in our lives, to celebrate your mercy when we are at our weakest and to rely on your mercy no matter what we may do. Make us like you, people of undivided, unrelenting, oh-so-generous grace. Amen.